this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think a lot of people who have traditionally not adopted or adapted to this new technology, I really think it's worth a try. As otolaryngologists, this is a huge group of patients that we treat. And I think we have to have something that's different than what a primary care physician or an allergist can get, which is sprays. And a lot of patients are not looking for spray. They're coming to you for something different because they're tired of trying everything. And so I think this should be in your algorithm of terms of treatment options options. I really do think if you have not adapted this technology to strongly consider it or because times have changed and I think this is going to only get more and more common. I think there's a lot of innovation in this field and my one piece of advice is this is very effective for both non-allergic rhinitis and allergic rhinitis patients and to consider treatment for them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with a hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Aaron Medical provides ENTs with advanced treatment options that provide lasting relief for patients with chronic nasal conditions. Fitting seamlessly into the office or OR setting, Aaron Medical's portfolio of non-invasive, temperature-controlled, radiofrequency products include Vivair for addressing nasal airway obstruction and Ryanair for chronic rhinitis. Learn more at aaronmedical.com. Now, back to the show. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT here today with my co-host and Life partner, should I just tell everybody my life partner, <laughs> Ashley Hagan. <laughs> How are you doing today, Ash? Hey, good morning, Gopi. I love it when we get to to co-host these together. It's always way more fun to be able to get to totally. see you and <laughs> chat with you. Absolutely. Yeah, and we have a great guest joining us today, too. Dr. Omar Ahmed is an otolaryngologist specialized in sinus and skull-based surgery. He practices at Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. And he's here today to talk to us about in-office procedures for chronic rhinitis. Welcome to the show, Omar. Hey, thanks for having me, Gopi and, and Ashley. I'm really excited to talk about this topic that I hold true and dear to my heart. It's an area where I've done a lot of research, and I'm very excited to kind of talk about some of the new innovations in this area. Awesome. Can you first just tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Yeah. So I grew up actually in the Chicagoland area. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago lived most of my life there. So I did my undergraduate at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. It's two hours south of Chicago. And then I went to medical school at the University of Chicago. I had two close mentors who were rhinologists, actually. They were my mentors in first year med school, and I really looked up to them, and I found them both very admirable, and I decided to go into ENT. I did my residency training at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. I actually couples matched with my wife, who's also a physician, who's a, a primary care physician, but uh, we couples matched in Houston as so we went down and I went to Baylor College of Medicine. I did five years of residency there and then I did a fellowship in rhinology, sinus and skull-based surgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And I came back to work with a lot of my mentors at Houston Methodist Hospital where I get to teach residents. I get to work with a lot of the medical students, actually, and I'm involved in a lot of the innovation. There's actually a Texas A&M engineering medicine program that's new 
And so I work with a lot of these students to develop new devices and innovations in the field of otolaryngology. So it's been great. And I have now been back in Houston for a little over three years. It's really cool. Awesome. Yeah. What a journey. So today we're going to talk about chronic rhinitis, specifically in the context of office space procedures. Can you talk a little bit about how your office space procedure practice has developed? Did you do much of that in your training or is that something that you kind of developed when you got out? So I think that's an issue. And I think with a lot of training programs, we're so heavily focused in the operating room, right? Like most of our residency, we are, I'd say probably three and a half, four days a week in the OR, one day a week in clinic and very little office-based procedure exposure. So I had really very little experience actually coming into being a new attending. And what kind of converted me and changed me is that there were so many patients, especially when you're developing a rhinology practice, that really don't want something invasive where you have to go to the operating room, right? And they have also tried tons of different medications. And so you're left in this middle ground, this place where you're like, you need something, you need to offer the patient something that's different and unique. And so I started getting involved in office-based procedures kind of from the very get-go, from doing things like Ceylon 1, RF ablation of the turbinates, and then I got involved actually in the randomized clinical trial with Aaron Medical or Ryanair and was able to do both placebo and, and actual treatment groups. And I saw what a difference it made in our patients. And so that kind of helped develop my practice. I also do Clarifix and I also do, I'm actually involved in the new clinical trial for the new RF ablation device with Neurent. So I've been involved in a lot of the research studies regarding these devices. And I'm really here to focus on Aaron Medical's Rhinair today, but I do have experience with all the devices. And what I've tried to do also is as I've done these procedures, I have tracked my outcomes. And I've collected all this data. And as I was going through it, I tried to figure out ways to continue to improve my outcomes. So a lot of my research is kind of focused in this area. And so now I'd say I probably do four or five office-based procedures a week. I do about probably five or six fesses a week in the operating room or some type of fest slash skull-based surgery in the operating room. So I do have a, a good balanced practice. That's really cool. You talked about your interest with innovation and a lot of the office-based procedures, that's where our ENT innovation is happening. 10, 15 years ago, I think it was in the operating room. And now as technology improves and patients value being able to get in and out, how we monetize time or the time that we have, how we want to utilize it, being able to have other options that are as effective and creative is pretty cool as well. Since we're going to talk about chronic rhinitis and then we can get into some of the in-office procedures, how do chronic rhinitis patients initially present to you? So is your practice like a tertiary quaternary care type or is it more community private practice based? So it is a tertiary quaternary care type practice, but even with that, I still get on average probably 30 rhinitis patients a week. And part of the reason is a lot of patients have sinus symptoms, right? But just because they have sinus symptoms doesn't necessarily mean they have sinusitis. Actually, majority of these patients have some form of rhinitis, whether it's allergic, mixed, or non-allergic rhinitis. And so I actually get a lot of these patients that are referred by PCPs, by allergists, by other ENTs as well. And so I've developed quite a niche in this area. I also do the surgical treatments for rhinitis, including video neurectomies and posterior nasal neurectomies as well. So I get referrals for that. 
So again, I see probably 20 to 30 rhinitis patients alone in a week, and it's, it's a big portion of my patients. So I really get patients both from primary cares, allergists, patients that are self-referred, and other ENTs as well. And when you're saying rhinitis, is that specifically the runny nose patient, or are there other symptoms that patients are presenting with, and how do you think about that when you're just purely taking the history? Yeah. So yes, there's one group of patients that have a pure vasomotor rhinitis. And traditionally, that's how what we thought these procedures were geared toward. But what we realized is that majority of the patients actually have a mixed rhinitis. There's also patients with purely allergic rhinitis. But our research and our understanding of this is changing. It's dramatically changed over the past 10 years, actually. One of my colleagues and mentors at Johns Hopkins Hospital actually is looking at pollution, environment, temperature, and all these other factors that trigger inflammation, right? And so we know that whatever form of rhinitis a patient has, it's often multifactorial. And so our understanding that, oh, this is a pure vasomotor, oh, this is a pure allergic rhinitis patient, I think is changing. And I think a majority of patients are actually truly mixed rhinitis. And so I'm looking at all the different types of rhinitis patients. And I think these treatment options actually are beneficial to all these groups of patients. And to tease out, like, for example, your chronic rhinosinusitis from your rhinitis patients, are you using other surveys or are there specific? I mean, I know there's the SWAT SPOT 22 and all that for, we think, usually for a CRS, but... Do you use those same surveys for these patients or are there other surveys for the rhinitis patients? Yeah. So we have a a very sophisticated system to gather patient report outcome measures. We have iPads for all our patients as soon as they walk in. And there there is a specific question algorithm that they go through to answer the questions. And based on how they answer the questions, they're either given a SNOT-22, TNSS is another very common total nasal symptom score. There is also some other quality of life measures. So we actually have teamed up with a couple other institutions to collect the same data points. So us, the University of Washington in Seattle, and actually now I think WashU in St. Louis is also joining. But what we're trying to do is create a big consortium and and in collaboration between a lot of institutions. So we're all collecting the same data points in our patients and every time they visit. So again, how do you distinguish a rhinitis patient from a sinusitis patient? You can't do it alone from these patient report outcome measures. You have to evaluate the patient. I think from almost all my patients, I scope them. And and in some patients, the scope alone is not enough. We actually have an in-office CT scanner, which I think is very beneficial. And I'd say about 25, 30% of patients where you scope them and you don't see any evidence of sinusitis, you pick up on a CT scanner. And so I think you need some objective evidence. And I think it's very easy to miss sinusitis patients. So really, I think either a scope or a scan are, are needed. Yeah. So that kind of brings us to the exam part, the workup for these patients. So when you're doing your nasal endoscopy, is there anything in particular that you are doing that would be different than a usual patient that comes in for anything else? Yeah. So I actually um, used to always spray my patients initially with the lidocaine afrin mixture. And so I see a lot of patients that come in with the primary symptom of post-nasal drip, right? And that's a very difficult symptom to figure out what's the cause. And so what I've realized is when you spray them with lidocaine with afrin, it doesn't give you the full picture because it decongests their nose it causes a, almost a vasomotor component of rhinitis. We've actually done a study on this right now. We submitted it to COSM. 
But we looked at all our patients who have gotten sprayed, and then we looked at uh, 25 patients who got sprayed, and then we scoped them. And almost, I think 90% of them had a vasomotor component where there's this kind of streak of drainage that goes along the inferior turbinate in the posterior aspect. And so it's misleading because you think, oh, this patient has like obvious drainage coming from their nose, but actually we're inducing that drainage from sprays. And so I actually have stopped spraying all my patients to be able to get a sense of what's really happening in the nose. How big are the turbinates really? How big are the septal swell bodies? There's actually another thing called the vestibular swell body, which I'm looking at, which also I'm looking in the anterior aspect of the nose. And so I'm really trying to get a sense of what does the natural nose look like? I think it's anything you spray in the nose. I think even if you spray saline, and we haven't done that study yet, but we've always sprayed all our patients with lidocanaphrine. But I think it's anything that you spray them with that will cause a component of the drainage. Are you using a rigid scope when you're doing your exam? Like, is it is there more patient discomfort if there's not decongested? So yes, it can be uncomfortable. But I think with the pediatric rigid scope, you can really get around a lot of like the inflammatory component of the turbinate or the portion of the nose that typically would decongest with the afrin, you can actually use a pediatric scope. And even if you do press on the turbinate itself, as long as you're not pressing on the bony component, I think patients tolerate really well. And I haven't really had many issues uh, unless there's like a severe septal deviation. And so, yeah, I think that the way to go if you really want to assess your patients is without sprays. And I think you need to use a pediatric scope. If you're looking at just the nose, as a rhinologist, I'm just looking at the nose, I'm using a pediatric rigid scope. Do you think that, and it might be because my practice is kids, but just the scope itself is irritating enough to cause a vasomotor rhinitis? And it may be because, you know, I think of eyes watering and I think of kids and some of them are in tears and that can also cause rhinitis as well. Do you see that as much in adults or is that not as much of an issue? So I don't see as much in adults. And the reason is I think you're going pretty quickly. I think it's like 10 seconds per side with your scope. And I don't think there's enough time to develop that drainage that's as obvious. So when we spray our patients, we spray them maybe 15 minutes before I even get in the room with the nurse or MA. And so I think that's enough time to cause that drainage. And so I think it's not really an issue with adults. And then with the vestibular swell body, is that swelling on the anterior floor part of the nose where... Yeah. So Dr. Nayak out of Stanford actually described this in a nice paper. And he actually, for patients with recalcitrant congestion, and he found this vestibular swell by. So it's basically just at the very anterior aspect of the nasal vestibule. On If you look into, for example, you're looking at the patient's left nasal cavity. It's on the bottom right-hand side as you're going in when you're looking at the patient. So it's a little swell body right in front of the inferior turbinate head on the inferior aspect of that. Okay. And then anything else in the office with, you know, you're doing a rigid nasal endoscopy with a pediatric scope, anything else that you do for exam before we move on? Yeah. So when patients complain of post-nasal drip, again, that's a very difficult symptom to assess. And so we actually just submitted an abstract. We looked at all patients who their primary complaint was post-nasal drip. And at the time of the scope, we asked them right now, how much post-nasal drainage do you feel on a Likert scale zero to five? And then we looked at other patients who said they have zero symptoms of post-nasal drip, right? And we scoped both groups and we had them blinded. We recorded it. There's absolutely no difference in the amount of drainage that's actually present. And so I think what that made me realize is that there is probably 
a big reflux component to this, like we, we traditionally thought. So for those patients that complain of postnatal drip, I also get a flexible scope and, and look at the larynx. Yeah, I think the postnasal drainage chief complaint, I agree, can be really challenging. I've seen what you're talking about where you spray them and you kind of see that drainage coming over the soft palate and you're like, oh, well, maybe maybe that's it. But if they hadn't been reporting that complaint, I also may not have thought about that at all because you can see it in so many normals. So it is very interesting that maybe there's a sensory component there that varies patient to patient. Tell us a little bit about your workup. Is allergy testing sort of for any rhinitis patient? Are you getting allergy testing if they don't already come in with testing or do you ever repeat it? Yeah. So a lot of my patients will have had allergy testing, especially in Houston where the allergen counts have been extremely high compared to other parts of the country. And so if they have not had allergy testing and they're really complaining of kind of the seasonal component, I will get allergy testing. We actually have a nurse practitioner that does all of our allergy testing and so do skin prick testing in our office. So I'll refer to him. And so, but again, I don't think I refer all my patients because, you know, I tell my patients, hey, like the reason to get allergy testing other than to understand what's the cause of your allergen is really to to potentially treat it with long-term therapy, which is either an injection that's daily or sublingual immunotherapy that you have to do for years. And so if patients are like, oh, no, I'm not doing that, then I don't find it very useful. But I do know other people think differently. So again, it really depends on the patient and really what they're trying to achieve and what they want to do to help with their treatment. So if they're kind of like, I want something done now, I don't want to be on something long term, then I, I don't find it to be super useful. With imaging, you know, you mentioned CT scan. I imagine because you are kind of a tertiary referral center, patients are probably coming in with a scan already. When I'm seeing patients like rhinitis patients as the first contact, I don't always feel like they have to have a scan if they're not really reporting any sort of sinusitis and symptoms and I don't see sinusitis or inflammation on endoscopy. How do you think of that? Do you feel like a scan is important for like a chronic rhinitis patient? So I think, again, yeah, I mean, if you see absolutely no evidence in their main symptom of nasal congestion or drainage, right, and you've scoped them and you don't see anything, I don't think it's absolutely necessary. For me, I think if I'm going to offer a procedure, it helps me, you know, be sure that this is the cause, especially in the allergic rhinitis patient where it's just very swollen everywhere. That part of me is thinking, oh, is there a sinusitis component to it? But again, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily economical to basically scan every single patient, especially pure vasomotor. Like there is absolutely, I don't think, a need for those patients. Going back to the patients that come in super swollen and boggy, on your exam, you will take a look without scoping. But do you ever find yourself like, hey, I'm having a hard time seeing everything or it's so boggy? that this is a tough exam. Do you then spray as well? Like, do you ever find, how often do you find yourself in that situation? Yeah. So I'd say if it's so swollen and I can't get it to really look at the posterior aspect of the middle meatus, because I'm really looking, is there something coming out of the middle meatus, just phenoethmoidal recess? And if I can't see that, then I will go ahead and spray them. I'll spray them and go to see another patient and say, I'll be back. And for your management, just for your for the typical, you know, rhinitis patient, are you starting with nasal sprays? You know, I feel like atrovent or ipratropium sprays kind of like it's what comes to mind when you think of particularly like a vasomotor rhinitis, chronic rhinitis patient. Or do you start with nasal steroid sprays and saline, the standard? 
So it depends what type of rhinitis they have, right? So if they have pure vasomotor, then I think atrovent is the way to go. Or drainage is the biggest issue for them. I think atrovent is the way to go. I'll typically use atrovent the higher dose, not only for treatment, but for diagnosis, right? So you, there's actually a great paper with John Craig and P. Batra at Henry Ford and, and Rush that they looked at atrovent response and how does that predict success with some of these procedures. And they found that an atrovent response to rhinorrhea specifically help predict rhinorrhea response or drainage to Clarifix. Or, and I'm sure you can apply that to Ryanair or any of the devices. So I think if it's vasomotor or the drainage is the issue, I will spray our ipratropin bromide and I'll go with the 0.06%. The issue is when they complain of post-nasal drip, you can try to use ipratropin bromide as a screening tool. But my concern is a lot of patients do not get response. And the question is, is it really drainage or is the ipratropin bromide not getting posterior enough to really target the posterior parasympathetic aspects of the nose. And so it's not as good of a screening tool for that. We actually looked at our own patients where we did Ryanair for the primary symptom of post-nasal drip. And basically a lot of these are sent by our laryngologists who said, we've done everything. They have this post-nasal drip. Just try, you know, try something. So so we looked at our outcomes and atrium response was not predictive for the post-nasal drip response to rhinair. So again, it's used for anterior rhinorrhea, but I don't think it could be used effectively for posterior rhinorrhea. Yeah, so you're saying that if a patient's primary complaint is post-nasal drainage, that whether or not they respond to atrovent is not predictive of whether or not they would respond to a posterior nasal nerve ablation. Especially if they have tight anatomy where the spray is not able to get back to that location. So we're doing a study where we're using a different delivery device to see if we can get further back there and see if we can potentially use that to predict postnasal drip response. Okay. Meaning that some of these postnasal drainage patients may actually benefit from a posterior na- nasal nerve ablation even if they didn't respond to adrenaline. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I mean they've been these are patients where they've been tried on reflux, they've seen GI. Usually those are patients where like they're sent by the laryngologist because they've been tried on reflux, like some type of reflux gourmet or some type of alginate therapy. They've been tried on PPIs, they've been seeing the GI doctor. They've seen the laryngologist who's like, I don't know, clearly not like us. They don't think it's a sensory phenomenon. So then they've sent those patients to me. And at that point, I I tell the patients, hey, like this is an option. I think the success rate, there's still a good chance for success. We looked at our patients, there was about 70% of our patients, we had a sample of 70 patients that did report an improvement. And so I think if the primary symptom is post-nasal drip, I think some of those patients can still benefit from posterior nasal nerve ablation. What is your atrovent dosing and how long do you try it for to see if there's a response? So, I mean, you can do a trial for two weeks. Honestly, that's all you need, really. I go with the higher doses because I say, okay, I can rule out. It's more of a diagnostic test to rule out, okay, are you responding to this at all? I'll go three times a day. So speaking of post-nasal drip, we just published something looking at all the Ryanair clinical data and looking at post-nasal drip and cough. But these are in patients who also had significant rhinitis. So their TNSSs were greater than a six. And TNSS is on a scale of zero to 12. Anything greater than six is considered you know, moderate to severe. And so all those patients were enrolled. And we looked at the outcomes and almost, I think, 
90% of patients had a significant improvement in chronic cough and post-nasal drip. So there is definitely an indication, I think, again, it's tough to tease out when the only symptom is post-nasal drip, but if they're in conjunction with rhinitis, it's shown to help. And prior to these in-office devices to treat the posterior nasal nerve, you had mentioned at the beginning doing surgery, posterior nasal neurectomy. Can you talk a little bit about that before we move on to the office procedures? So I do probably about three or four video neurectomies a year still, and I do probably about one or two posterior nasal neurectomies a month. And these are patients who have failed. I think in this day and age, you have to try the in-office option first because it's saving time, saving money, saving to the patient, to the hospital system. And since basically, if you look at all the data, their responder rates anywhere from 70 to 90, 95%. So again, that leaves anywhere from 5 to 30% of patients that don't get a benefit. And so typically, I will do these procedures if they have failed other therapies and sometimes even failed two separate treatments. I was going to ask you, do you repeat a, the in-office procedure and then before you jump to those? Yeah, definitely. I've had a lot of patients, they've tried, you know, Clarifix or, and it failed. And then I tried Ryanair, had success. And so you don't need to do a procedure. But if you failed everything, then you, you have to think that we're just not, tar- at least in my thought processes, we're not targeting the nerves, the posterior nasal nerves. And it's much more complicated than we initially thought, right? So we thought, oh, the nerves are right in front of the middle turbine attachment. You hit it there, you're good. But when you look at anatomical data, it's much more intricate. There's there's branches that come posterior to the middle turbinate, right in front of the eustachian tube opening. There are branches that go even close to the floor of the nose. And, and there's actually a recent paper that looked at parasympathetic innervation from the anterior ethmoid that travel along the anterior artery. And so, again, I think our understanding is going to continue to evolve. And so I think when we are not successful, I think we're missing the nerve. And a vidianorectomy is like 100%, you're going to get the nerve. But again, almost all my patients have dry eyes. But there's some patients who are so desperate that are just like, I want something done. Post-genesonorectomy is advantageous compared to, you know, vidianorectomy because it's Basically, it's finding all the small parasympathetic branches in that in the posterior middle meatus, but also further posterior to that and actually lysing each of the branches. And actually doing a lot of those has helped me understand the anatomy much better because you see all these tiny, wispy parasympathetic fibers. And you're like, oh, I usually, like at least when I first started doing this, like, oh, I usually don't treat that area with right air. Hmm, maybe I should start treating that area. And so that's our understanding has changed. So can you go into sort of give us an overview on the different devices that are out there for the in-office procedures? And then I would like to then get into the more specifics of the Ryanair device. Yeah. So right now, there's three devices in the market. The first device that was FDA approved is Clarifix. I think it was FDA approved in 2017. So it was the first to the market. It uses cryotherapy ablation. So it's almost freezing the posterior nasal nerves. And there's great data for it. It's successful. The data rate is anywhere from 65 to, I think, 90% success rate in terms of responder rate. I think the second one that came out was 2019. That was FDA approved was the Ryanair. And this uses a temperature-controlled radiofrequency ablation of the potion as a nerve, and it heats it to 60 degrees Celsius. It's just the right temperature where you're not burning the surrounding tissue and damaging the surrounding tissue. And that device, again, great success. A lot of my research is, has been done using that device. And the nice advantage of this device is that it can really target the septal swell bodies, which are very involved in nasal congestion. 
which we traditionally did not think of. It can be used to treat the vestibular swell body as well. And as our understanding of the posterior nasal nerves is changing, there are many more areas that are hard to reach. And with this device, you can actually get access to those areas, right? Because the tip of the stylus is much narrower and smaller. It's more focused. And so you can actually get behind the middle terminate. You can get in these tight areas, which you couldn't get before. And so that's the, the second device. The third device that was just FDA approved is the Neurent. And this uses radio frequency ablation, kind of similar to Aaron. And what this does is, again, I think a, a 90 second treatment that basically is a shotgun approach. So you basically have these two leaflets and you basically have one leaflet that goes behind the middle turbulent attachment and another leaflet that goes in front of the middle turbulent attachment. And the idea is like targeting all the posterior nasal nerves. I've not had as much experience using that. I have performed some and now we're involved in the clinical trial for it. And the advantage is, I guess, at it, this it like an easy one-time shotgun approach, I guess the disadvantage is you can't treat the septal swell bodies or the turbinates or vestibular swell bodies, which you can with Reiner. In terms of efficacy, we actually did an indirect comparison paper and we published this in IFAR where we looked at using what's called a butcher coefficient. And you can do an indirect comparison if the clinical trials were performed in a very similar manner. And so we looked at both Clarifix and Reiner, and we found them to be equally effective. The one thing that at least we've looked at with our own data is the amount of headaches with Clarifix. So actually one out of two of our patients that we've done Clarifix, we've done about 90 Clarifixes now in our group, and one out of two have had a major headache. And so that lasts at least an hour. It's like an ice cream headache, so which you, you don't get typically with the, the other devices. Yeah, I think that that's one of the side effects that I think always makes me nervous about about using the cryotherapy as well. When you are thinking about who's the best candidate for the procedure, what, you know, kind of take me through your your thought process on that. Yeah. So I think any patient that has tried medication and failed, right? And they just, or, or they just can't tolerate the medication. And sometimes people say with fluticasone or some ipratropium, it really burns their nose. They can't do it. Or patients who who tried medication that just can't do and they want some type of relief. I think any patient is really a candidate. Anyone from 18 and above, I've performed it on patients that were 92 years old. And I've performed it on patients who are 25 years old. So I have a wide range. Basically anyone who doesn't, necessarily want long-term treatment and wants uh, kind of more of a quick fix. And so I think anyone who's interested, I think, is a candidate. Patients who are super anxious and you know it's going to be difficult to do an in-office procedure, those are patients I typically will shy away from or at least say, hey, we can do this in the OR in conjunction with another procedure. So, and this includes your allergic rhinitis patients. Like, let's say you have a patient who's maxed out on their Flonase and Azelastine, and they're using all the sprays and they're still having symptoms. Oh, yeah. That, that's actually one of the, like, I think about 50% of the patients that perform these procedures are actually allergic or what I call mixed rhinitis because, again, there's probably so much more than just allergies. It's, you know, pollution, temperature. And so those patients as well, I think, benefit. I actually have a good relationship with my allergist and even the, the nurse practitioner in our group as well. They'll say, hey, you can either go on immunotherapy or you can try this procedure. And I think a lot of patients will actually want to try the procedure. There's outcome data, I think, for at least one year for allergic rhinitis. In terms of mechanism, that's one thing I'm interested in studying. But clearly, parasympathetic innervation of the nose and decreasing the parasympathetic innervation of the nose 
has shown to decrease inflammatory cells, has shown to decrease the number of mucus glands itself. And so, so clearly there's something happening. And I think altering the parasympathetic innervation is really helping these patients. And I think, you know, in the 70s and, and 80s, I think there was a lot of research in kind of parasympathetic innervation, even chronic sinusitis. I think we kind of shied away from that, I think a lot of times because of the big push for by pharma for anti-steroidal medication. And so there's a big push away from it. But I think the parasympathetic innervation does play a key role in a lot of this. Is it as effective in the allergy patients because you still have that allergy component or is it about the same between the two groups? The comparison between the two groups, if you look at the studies show, it's at the TNS score decreases by the same amount. If the trigger is some type of environmental allergen, I do question, you know, in three years, other than it's going to be right back to where it is. We just don't have the data. And again, I don't think I've followed my patients long enough to understand that. But at least for one year, probably even two years, there's definitely a, an improvement. But yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from, Gopi. It's like, okay, you don't decrease the trigger of the inflammation, then it might just come right back. And I, I understand that. I think that more research needs to be done. But I do think for one to two years, it is very beneficial. And for patients, one to two years is a long time. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, you have patients, and I've personally experienced it, where you do have allergic rhinitis, you're allergic to something, but you have fluctuations throughout the day. You're like, I'll have patients say, yeah, I wake up in the morning and I sneeze, sneeze, sneeze. Then I do a nasal rinse and I go about my day and I'm fine for the rest of the day. And so it's like, there's something about, you know, maybe the, the parasympathetic tone throughout the day, maybe that affects that. Do you ever think about that? Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I mean, I agree. Uh, again, there's so many factors and you're right. I think the tone changes. We know it's regulated hormonally. We know it's regulated. We see that with our rhinitis patients in pregnancy, right? Clearly there's a hormonal effect of this. And so, yes, I think partially regulated by the parasympathetic system. And with your counseling patients for their expectations post-procedure, you know, what do you tell them as far as like, when can they expect to notice improvement? And do you have a different spiel if they're a vasomotor patient versus an allergic rhinitis patient? Or is it, you have one kind of standard expectation for everybody across the board? Yeah. So I think there, yeah, there's a different, I have different spiels for depending on the patient type. I'm always very conservative and I say six weeks, you should expect to see some changes. If you actually look at the data, the responder rate increases with time, which is interesting, right? You, you think that at some point it levels off, but even if you look at from three months to one year to two years, somehow the responder rate seems to increase if you look at the clinical trials. I tell my patients at least six weeks you should start getting a sense. I would wait before considering another treatment or another treatment option. I would wait at least three to six months before reconsidering any type of procedure. And so I usually tell my patients to wait that amount of time. For vasomotor rhinitis patients, I tell them that you'll at least have a 30% reduction in symptoms. You probably won't completely get rid of your runny nose. I think part of the issue is there's so many parasympathetics in the nose that I just don't think you can target all of them. So they're still going to have some drainage. But again, there's obvious evidence of significant reduction in medication use and also overall symptoms, right? So again, the number of Kleenexes you use or the number of times you have to spray Atrovent. You have to give them realistic expectations. And for your allergic rhinitis? Yeah, allergic rhinitis patients are a little different in the sense. I think majority of the patients are going to get improvement. And I think the reason why is you're also treating the turbinates. When I, for my allergic rhinitis patients, I treat the septal swell bodies, I treat the turbinates, and I treat the posterior nasal nerve. 
So clearly, you're hitting three targets. They're going to get an improvement in their congestion. Now, the drainage component of it, I think they're still going to get like 80%, probably get an improvement. But at least the congestion component, almost all of them are going to get improvement. I have very rarely had a patient say that did not help at all. So I tell them that, you know, at three months, six, six weeks to three months, you're going to see improvement in your symptoms. And you can use the same stylus or handpiece for your swell body, your turbinate, and the posterior nasal nerve when you use the Ryanair product. Yes, yes, you can. They did change. So the new stylus for Ryanair has gone actually a little bit skinnier and it's slimmer to, and easier to access certain regions. And even the tip of the stylus is slimmer. The one thing that you lose with it is some rigidity and stiffness to it. So if it's a really medialized turbinate, inferior turbinate, I will sometimes also use a Goldman elevator to lateralize a turbinate to help with improving the nasal airflow. Talk to me a little bit about difficult anatomy. So I think of deviated septums. I think of really huge body turbinates. How do you manage some of that anatomy in the clinic? And when are you like, you know what, we got to do some other things first <laughs> before we can get access to where we need to be? Yeah, I think a global deviation that's severe on a septum and that's very challenging to get around. But they're patients. And so for those patients... If I see and I'm, I have like, there's no room to get a scope even into that region, then I will usually, you know, try to shy away from an in-office procedure for those patients. For patients that, there are some patients that have kind of a septal spur. And I think those patients, you can, even if the spur is right at the treatment site, I think for those patients, you can actually do something. You can use, you can actually have done targeted septoplasties in clinic where I'll actually inject that part of the septum and I'll actually raise the little submucosal flaps in those regions, and I'll actually use a kerosene to kind of bite off that region and leave the flap, lay the flaps back on, and then I'll do the procedure. Um, there's also the airway balloon um, by Clarent, which you can use, um, which I think is useful. It does cause a deviation to the other side sometimes, but I think you can use that as well. And in terms of actual stylet placement, like when you're doing the posterior nerve ablation, where exactly and how many, you know, are you marching down to the floor of the nose posteriorly? Like, where are you putting everything and how many of these areas do you ablate? So if you look at our treatment algorithm has changed over the years. Um, when I first started doing this, we were doing three, four treatments in the posterior nasal nerve region and basically the middle meatus, right? So we looked at right in front of the middle turbine attachment. And we found our success rates were about 60% when we did that. We looked at our data. We actually ended up getting CT scans on a lot of patients. And for some of those patients that failed, we did posterior nasal nerectomy, the video nerectomy. And what we found is that some patients had a middle turbinate that was very anterior in relationship to the sphenopalatine foramen. So I know it's complicated, but like a lot of the main branches of the posterior nasal nerve were coming out of the you know, sphenopalatine foramen. But in some patients, the middle turbinate attachment, the lamella, the middle, lateral lamella, the middle turbinate is much more anterior. And I think in those patients, if you just treat in front of the middle turbinate, you're going to miss a, a lot of posterior nasal nerves, different branches of the parasympathetics. And so we actually changed our algorithm and we saw a significant increase in our success rates, our responder rates from like 60 something percent to like 90 percent. And we actually published that in, in IFAR as well. So my algorithm is because of this new knowledge. So I'll actually do a non-overlapping sites. So I'll do about four to five treatments. I'll start right in front of the middle turbinate initially, and I'll, I'll go as high as I can. 
as superior as I can. And then I'll do at least four to five treatments in that area. Then I march down and I actually go behind the middle turbine attachment and we'll do one or two treatments. And then I'll go right in front of the eustachian tube opening, right? So right before that torus, the eustachian tube. And there's a lot of parasympathetic nerves in that region, which I will treat. And I'll march my way down just behind the mulberry tip of the, of the inferior turbine and treat that region. Because I think that region is really the highest yield area, which we traditionally did not think of. And then I'll also do the turbinate, the mulberry, because I think the mulberry does play a role in postnasal drip. We're studying that as well. And then um, the turbinate is really large. I'll march along the, t- the inferior turbinate as well, all the way to the head of the inferior turbinate. Now, if it's pure vasomotor, I don't feel the need to treat the head of the inferior turbinate, right? Or even treat the septal swell bodies. But I will kind of march along the region. So I, technically, you're allowed 11 treatments for each side. I think I actually probably do 13 to 14 treatments. And the way I get around it is for some of the treatments along the turbinate, I will actually just stop one second shy of the allotted time. And basically, you don't use up a treatment when you do that. And so, but probably 13 to 14 treatments on each side. So just to be more comprehensive. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'm thinking about revisions. If you're doing that kind of comprehensive treatment from the get-go now, do you find that you're doing less revisions because you've really kind of treated every possible place where you could have little nerve branches coming from? Or would you, if you did a revision, would you just do the same thing? Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I, mean, I had one patient that, you know, had Clarifix, had Ryanair, failed, and even had a posterior nasonerectomy. And here I'm like, posterior nasonerectomy is effectiveness is like over 95%. It's really effective. But even in that, the patient failed. And I and the patient was so desperate. I was like, okay, my last option is to do a videonerectomy. And I did the videonerectomy and the patient has success. So clearly, even if you're as comprehensive as you can be, I think there's just some branches that we don't understand where they're even coming from. And we're missing them even as comprehensive as you can be. Do we know if any of these nerves re or regrow? And is that like, in terms of how long does this procedure last for? We said for the allergy patients, you know, if we can get them a good one to two years, you know, how do these procedures tend to last for? And what do we think are the reasons for the return of symptoms? Yeah, that's a very good question. We don't have a lot of data for terms of nerve regrowth. Clearly, we're not severing the nerve, right, for these procedures. And there's at least two-year data on success. I think there will be three-year data at some point. Clearly, it's beneficial. And so the question is, at least in my mind, I'm thinking we're resetting the nerve for these patients. We're not killing it, right? We're resetting the nerve. There's no data that's looked at in live patients two years after what's happened. Ideally, a study where we, we look at patients that have success three years you know, after and compare the nerve to patients who don't have success as they're changed. I wanted to do some type of impedance testing, some type of way to test the electrical activity of the nerve. And I'm, I'm trying to find someone good to collaborate, but we don't have data on it. And so clearly, I think we are getting two years. And I've had some patients with three years out that have, and four years out that are great success. So clearly, you know, we're resetting something. I don't know the exact mechanism of what's happening. And no one does. Yeah, more to come on that front. So for your patients, after you've done the procedure, what are your post-procedure instructions and what complications are you on the lookout for? Yeah. So I always tell patients, you're going to feel really congested, like you had a really bad cold for a week. Just expect it. You're going to feel miserable, especially if you treat the entire turbinate 
it is really swollen. I've actually gotten the chance to see some of my patients two days post-treatment because they were so miserable, especially some of my VIP patients. And you look in their nose and it's pretty impressive how swollen it gets with any of the procedures in the nose. Even if you do like a C-Lon turbinate reduction, I mean, it is, it is so crusty and so swollen. And so I tell my patients, your first week, you're miserable. Do your rinses. I actually tell patients to do the rinses just to help kind of get some of the, the crusting and mucus out. There's no data on like the mucus irrigations helps, you know, post-op recovery, but it just seems like we do all this right now. all our patients are get started on rinses. So I, I do that. I tell my patients to really not blow their nose hard in that first few two to three weeks. If you look at the complication data from all the clinical trials, really it's like minor bleeding, pain, discomfort, those types of anxiety, things like that. We have had the opportunity to do over 300 now. And I think one of the dreaded complications, which I think can happen with any device that you use, is major epistaxis. And I think we are treating the area of the posterior nasal nerve, which is right by the sphenopalatine artery in all its branches. At least in our data, none of our patients had immediate post-op bleeding. It was a small subset of less than 2% of patients, whether it was Clarifix, whether it was Neurent, whether it was Rhinair, that had a bleed that required some type of surgical intervention. Again, it's very rare, but I do think, I've talked to people though that have done quite a few of these who have not run into that complication. Again, this is just my data set from doing uh, mine and my colleagues from doing over 300 of these. And we did have a bleed rate of less than 2%. But it's something to think about. I think the mechanism is probably, and it happens all at three weeks after the procedure. And it seems to be, I would assume, a, probably a type of, some type of pseudoaneurysm of the, of the vessels itself, the sphenopalatine branches that rupture at three weeks. I don't know. Ashley, I know you do these procedures, right? And do you, did you, have you ever had an epistaxis or? No, I haven't, but I heard other people kind of talk about potentially having, you know, a massive nosebleed. So I talk to patients about it and tell them, you know, if something like that were to happen, they need to go to the emergency room, but I haven't experienced it personally. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, anytime you operate, anytime you do functional endoscopic sinus surgery or any type of procedure in the nose, I think bleeding is a risk. And I think as long as patients are aware of that, I have not had a patient turn away this procedure because of bleeding because anything we do can bleed and even major bleeds even after functional endoscopic sinus surgery. So as long as patients are counseled on it, again, I don't think it'll deter patients away and it's very low risk and it doesn't matter what device you use. And most of the patients do really well. And I think this has really changed the way I treat rhinitis patients. Do you have your patients hold their anticoagulation for this procedure? Have them stay on it? What do you like to do? So it depends on what anticoagulation they are on. Because of the bleeding risk, if it's aspirin 81, I, I tell them to continue taking it. Anything more than that, I do like them to hold the medication. More so, I'm sure people do this procedure with patients on anticoagulation and they're fine. But for me, I'm just trying to avoid a lot of phone calls. I'm assuming the, the risk of bleeding increases. I usually have them hold it for a week. Before, and then when do you let them restart it? Uh, usually about a week. And then have you done any of these with other, like, combo with a FES or where you have to maybe do some Rainier for postnasal drainage or you're going to go to the OR or, you know, maybe in clinic? Well, you mentioned doing a septoplasty for spurs for access, but do you ever use this for a combination with other sinus procedures? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I for septoplasties and turbinate reductions, a lot of my patients have a rhinitis component. So I always give them the option, hey, you know, you're going under, would you want to also do this? And it I give them the other option where I say, Hey, you can see how you do with a septoplasty turbinate reduction. If your main symptom is just congestion, I'm guessing we can get a better without a procedure. But if they have a big drainage component to them, I I kind of tell them that it's likely that drainage won't improve significantly with the septoplasty slash turbinate reduction. And for those patients, I say, hey, you can do a Ryanair in office, I mean, sorry, in the operating room in tandem with your septoplasty turbinate reduction. Now, FES is a different story. I never even do a turbinate reduction with FES. And the reason is, if the root cause is inflammation from the sinuses, if you are able to control that inflammation, you can get better and you don't necessarily even need to, the turbinates actually shrink down. Have you seen a really bad polyp patient that you get them better and the turbinates actually shrink in size? And so with FEST patients that don't have a vasomotor component, I usually will try FEST first. If they still have a drainage issue, I would at least offer the treatment after the fact. There is a study going on that's looking at patients with type 1 inflammation, looking at posterior nasal nerve ablation, And that's a really interesting concept because type 1 inflammation typically don't have polyps and they have lots of mucoid drainage. So does changing the parasympathetic innervation help those patients? Data still not out yet. I think it would be very interesting to see. Yeah, those are tough patients. They're hard to help get better sometimes for sure. So moving on, just wanted to, you know, before we let you go, would love to hear your anesthesia protocol, just kind of talking about how you get patients comfortable and prepared for the procedure in the office. Yeah, so it actually works really well on my clinic days to do these procedures. I block off 30-minute slot, and what I do is traditionally, as soon as they walk in, they fill out surveys, they get sprayed with lidocaine with Afrin, and then I walk into the room right after they've been sprayed. I put two pledges on each side. So I have one pledget that's cut in half, and I actually take that pledget and put it in with a bayonet initially. Then I take a freer and slide it into the middle meatus. It's 6% tetracaine. I slide, and it's really hard to, to actually get it into the middle meatus, but that's the reason that I see it, where you need to put the pledget and to get a good apposition. The second pledget goes along the inferior turbinate. I do it on both sides. Again, really important to put the pledget in that middle meatus region and see it go in. And once I do that, I let them sit for 15 minutes, see my next patient, then walk back and do the procedure. Procedure takes on average less than 10 minutes. And so in terms of clinic flow, it's just very efficient. Doesn't take up that much time because while they're getting anesthetized, you are seeing another patient and they're sitting there doing their red cap surveys. Wow. That's great. So it's just a nasal pledget with Afrin and Lido and that's it. No, no, no. So, so I spray them first with Afrin and Lido to help decongest their nose. And then and my nurse does that. Then I come in and put pledgets in the nose with tetracaine, 6% tetracaine. And once you let those sit, but once you remove those, you don't do an injection in that area. It's just all topical. All topical. I used to. It's interesting. You know, one of the concepts with radiofrequency ablation is it conducts better through liquid right? So I used to always inject, but I think there's enough edema and fluid in the tissue itself that it doesn't need it. And so I don't inject. And part of the reason why I don't inject is because sometimes with the injection, the area gets bloody for me. I record my cases, you know, so I, I like it when it's bloodless. Yeah, of course. How long do you leave the pledgets on for? 10 to 15 minutes. Okay. 
So do you go maybe see a next post stop and then come back in and kind of bounce back and forth? Yeah. And depending on the schedule, if I'm running behind, I'll go see two patients and then yeah, anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes is fine. Do you have patients that want to take some sort of benzo, like a Valium or a triazolam or like, and do you find that that's necessary? Very rarely. I'd say maybe three times a year, I'll have some patients that are super anxious that need it. But for the majority of patients, I don't. I just do it and they're usually fine. Yeah. I mean, one of the advantages of doing it in the office is the ability to just drive yourself in, get it done, and then leave and go on with your day. So I usually tell patients if they if they want to take something, obviously they have to have a driver and it, it kind of changes some of that convenience factor, but some people really want it. So, Omar, can you tell us a little bit about the, some of the new billing and CPT? There's approval now or tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So there's a new code that was approved and it's starting at least with Medicare in January. And so the new code will allow you, there's two separate codes, one for radiofrequency ablation of post nerve and, and Clarifix has their own one where they have cryotherapy ablation. I don't know why they have two separate codes, but they do. And it is still economically advantageous. It definitely covers much more than the cost of the device. And so there's, yeah, in, in January, there's a new code with Medicare. I don't know how long it'll take for the other private insurances to approve the new code. Uh, and so I think it'll be a little bit of uphill battle in the first six months to a year. The one good thing with especially vasomotorhinitis is most of your patients are older. And so a lot of them will have Medicare, so it shouldn't be an issue for those patients. And then the nice thing as well, if you are, so right now we're using the code 30117 to structure intranasal lesion to bill for these. There are some insurances that have flat out denied these codes. And basically, I think UHC and a couple other insurances just did not accept it. And for those patients right now, we're offering a cash option. But I think hopefully with the new code, this will all go away. You can also use 30117 in conjunction with the new code if you are treating the septal swell bodies. And again, that gets into an area I'm just not as familiar with. And I usually let our coding billing people do a lot of that. And if you have more questions about it, you could always contact your local Aaron rep and they will be very happy to kind of explain to you all the coding and billing. But again, yeah, new code, it's going to be, it's going to be great. Yeah, that's exciting. As we round it out and wrap it up, Omar, any final pearls regarding the device or chronic rhinitis patients? Yeah, I think a lot of people who have traditionally not adopted or adapted to this new technology, I really think it's worth a try. I think as otolaryngologists, this is a huge group of patients that we treat. And I think we have to have something that's different than what a primary care physician can give, right? Or an allergist can give, which is sprays. And a lot of patients are not looking for spray. They're coming to you for something different because they're tired of trying everything. And so I think this should be in your algorithm of terms of treatment options. And I, I really do think if you have not adapted this technology to strongly consider it, or because times have changed, and I think this is going to only get more and more common. I think there's a lot of innovation in this area, in this field. And my one piece of advice is this is very effective for both non-allergic rhinitis and allergic rhinitis patients and to consider treatment for them. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Omar. If any of our audience or listeners wanted to reach out to you for questions, are you on any social media? Yes, I have a Twitter account. Sign a specialist on Twitter and you can, yeah, at the sign a specialist is my handle. 
So you can tweet me or you can also contact your Aaron rap or a local rap. And you can look at, I'm sure if you pop mad, you can find my email on there and, and things like that. So fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. This was great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Ashley and Gopi. I'm also very interested in research in this field. And so if anyone ever wants to collaborate, I think that's the only way we continue to push this field forward is to look at our own outcomes and think about mechanism, think about what's actually happening and how we can continue to treat these patients. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ogrodzinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.